Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that Right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Good morning, and welcome back to New Books in Eastern European Studies. Uh, I'm your host, Piotr Kosicki, history professor at the University of Maryland in College Park. It is my great pleasure to welcome as my guest today, Professor Joanna Mishtal. Professor Joanna Mishtal is a professor of anthropology at the University of Central Florida, Department of Anthropology. She received her PhD in cultural and medical anthropology in 2006 from the University of Colorado at Boulder. From 2006 to 2008, she held a postdoctoral fellowship at Columbia University Mailman School of Public Health. Her research interests are at the intersection of gender and governance, specifically reproductive rights, health, and policies. Her research has been supported by the U.S. Fulbright Program, the European Research Council, and the World Health Organization. And we will be talking today actually about a book that Professor Mishtal published in 2015, which in recent years has become extraordinarily relevant uh, to the extent that it never really stopped being relevant at all, but is really important as a centerpiece for conversation. And for that reason, it's my great pleasure to welcome Professor Mishtal to our program. Welcome. Thank you very much for this lovely introduction. So uh, the book we're talking about today, The Politics of Morality, The Church, the State, and Reproductive Rights in Post-Socialist Poland, uh, came out with Ohio University Press. Um, Professor Mishtal, if you could maybe just say a few words about what brought you to researching uh, reproductive rights in uh, the post-socialist era. Uh, reproductive rights have not really been on my radar um, in the earlier parts of my life uh, as so much. But when I came to the United States and uh, I was exploring a topic for my graduate work in anthropology, uh, this uh, surfaced as something that, that was becoming urgent because um, uh, just to backtrack a little bit, um, I came to the United States in 1981. I grew up in Poland, in communist Poland. Um, and my upbringing there, my experience, um, uh, 
at that time, until I was a teenager, was um, rather egalitarian, I would say, as far as gender, sexuality. Um, I felt that um, there were um, reproductive rights were there. <clears throat> and uh, it was not a big topic in the news, it was not a big topic necessarily um, politics. Um, but um, that experience uh, then um, was sort of forgotten uh, or not really um, in the forefront of my mind. But when I came to the United States, what I was observing from distance in, in the safety of, of being in the U.S. is the turmoil in Poland, the, of course, the imposition of um, the martial law. Um, in 1981, and um, and then the transformations that took place, and in the 1990s, uh, many of the transformations that were taking place in Poland were around reproductive rights, restrictions um, on reproductive rights, and um, at that time, as I was exploring my my topics for for research for my PhD work at the University of Colorado at Boulder. Um, it occurred to me that that this is an urgent issue. It's, it's it was concerning, but also it was an interesting uh, kind of a juxtaposition of um, the the more sort of linear narratives that I was hearing from my peers, um, even professors in my department that that sort of envisioned the changes in Poland going in the, in the sort of uh, exp- in the direction of expanding rights. So there was the communism being sort of you know oppressive in, in every way. And then Poland, um, the solidarity movement um, rising in, not only in Poland but also on the international media stage, um, great attention to, all, to, to, to those democratic um, revolutions taking place in that part of the world. And so a lot of these narratives that I was hearing from my peers, my professors and friends here in the U.S. were quite linear, that there there was communism with restricted rights, the oppression um, permeating daily lives, and then um, this transformation into democracy. And so I was struck by... Um, how the restrictions on reproductive rights in Poland didn't get the kind of attention or, or didn't, certainly they were coming up in the media, but the, the changes around women's rights, reproductive rights in particular, were um, kind of a challenge for people to understand because of this meta-narrative that certainly in a democracy there's expansion of rights. So this was this is how I originally really became interested in um, the topic from an academic perspective, trying to explore what does this mean really for people in Poland? What does it mean for women in particular? Um, and is this a welcome change? Uh, so this was this is sort of the the moment in which I thought, well, this. I still speak the Polish language, uh, perhaps not as well as I as I used to, but I felt um, that this was the, the place to go to do my research. 
I, I think for, for those who, uh, in the audience who haven't read your book yet, and I hope everyone will, it's a really powerful book. And I think the, the story is really just, it, it, it brings implications to bear in so many different respects. Uh, I would say that it's a maybe counterintuitive, given the linear narrative you brought up a moment ago, to say that there has been a regression, uh, that a move, a backwards move in terms of social rights since the collapse of the communist period. On the one hand, uh, neoliberalism, the rise of uh, the sort of the, 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 the wild free market in Eastern Europe, most folks recognize that there were social ills that followed. But the idea, I think in one part of your book, you mentioned this notion that independence in some ways throttled feminism or uh, made, made feminism seem tainted, seem like a relic of a, an authoritarian past. That is very striking and very stark and something that strikes me as really missing from mainstream interdisciplinary conversation even years on. Uh, do you find or were you satisfied, let's say, with the overall reception of that idea? Did, 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 did people get uh, what you wanted to say in a way that you were happy with? Um, in general, yes, very much so. I felt that, that my book was um, uh, putting connecting the dots for people. People are, in general, the, the people in my circles in academia, but also um, outside as well, because I'm, I'm certainly um, connected to the world of um, reproductive health activism in, in Poland, but also in other European countries, in Ireland, for example. Um, and I... I found that people understood that there were restrictions on reproductive rights, but the the connection was elusive, or the connection was not always uh, so explicit for them. Because democracy um, is such a um, uh, such a loaded term in in many ways, and and what does it mean exactly? What sort of democratization took place in Poland? Um, should be questioned. And, and so sort of directing um, my readers or directing my peers, um, certainly my students, to think, to question uh, the nature of uh, Polish democracy and sort of the contradictions that came with the Polish democratization process where <clears throat> while rights were expanded and, as you said, there was independence, um, achieved. My, my work really questions what kind of independence was it? What was it, what did Poland become independent from? In fact, I think uh, thinking with the word independence, I think makes me, makes me, um, brings, what brings up for me, um, it, it brings up the fact that actually there was, there was a sort of a kind of dependence that, or interdependence that was uh, very much um, developed that that surfaced it was not it was not sudden but the interdependence of the church and state and this is the this is the crucial point I, I feel in my book um, bringing attention to the role of the Catholic Church as an institution not so much as a I'm not really examining the um, 
um, the, the meanings, the religious meanings that people uh, might uh, feel nourished by, um, the religious rituals, but rather the, the side of the institutional power of the Catholic Church. So the, the story coming from Poland and its democratization process for me really highlights the decisive role of the Catholic Church as an institution, as a political entity, um, as a, um, as a uh, constellation of power, shall we say, that influenced very specific kinds, sets of laws that have to do with, with women's rights. It influenced the, uh, of course, abortion rights were severely restricted immediately after the fall of communism. Contraception was, uh, became limited after the fall of communism. Was, it became, um, there was no longer subsidies for it. Um, prenatal testing can be difficult to get in Poland for, for the same reasons of sort of the morality in politics that the church um, and the state and the right-leaning um, elements in the, Polish, um, in the Polish government over the years um, uh, use and propose and 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 sort of circulate these discourses um, that that uh, that that are anti reproductive rights, anti um, um, seeing abortion, contraception, family planning as a reproductive health issue, or uh, seeing seeing those rights as a gender equity issue which is a whole separate realm of thinking and, and struggle um, around rights. Uh, so it's, it's not just health, it's, it's also gender equity that was, that's, that's extremely important. Um, so on the larger scale, we can also think about the role of women in the democracy, in the liberal democracy. What is that role? And the, the Polish story really um, talks about... Uh, not so much independence. I mean, of course, as you said, we can think about independence, uh, free, freedom from the Soviet Union, freedom from communism, sort of the um, free market era. I suppose a lot of people connect um, democracy or collapse, collapse democracy with the opening of free markets. Um, but when it comes to rights, it's really uh, it's really another story. It's a story of dependence on the um, interdependence between the, the church and state. Yeah, I think one of the most powerful things for me, uh, as given, I I I I, I for example, write a great deal about the history of the Catholic Church, and in the literatures that I engage, often the phrase church-state relations is a commonplace. But oftentimes, the, it's rendered either in very abstract terms or reduced to, let's say, backroom negotiations between high-ranking prelates and, and state officials. And sure, there are prelates and state officials in, in the book that, that you've written. They're, they're very significant. But by the same token, uh, the, the bottom line is the impact at large, on society at large, in a way that I think is really uh, rendered very powerfully, and, and and both at the aggregate level and at the level of individual stories. You know, the, the one one line that really I remember stood out for me from the politics of morality is from an interview you did where 
your interview subject, I think her name was Magda, said that we lost the language with which to speak about abortions, where in some sense, uh, feminism or, or a language of possibility of conceptualizing reproductive rights had been given by the state uh, under communism, which limited female agency. And then the state after 1989, I guess, opened doors to the Catholic Church to deprive female agency in a different and, I mean, I think we can say more nefarious way. And that in some sense, you know, I, I don't necessarily want to talk about uh, Solidarity's leadership, but it's striking that Lech Wałęsa, not a church figure, but he comes off as kind of a, 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 a boogeyman in some ways in your story, as having opened a lot of those doors to a lot of nefarious outcomes. Uh, you have a phrase, the colonization of language or self-censorship, which I think is very powerful. What for you in the 1990s uh, became, I mean, I just keeping in mind that, that, that some of the of our audience won't know your book at all. Uh, what what? How would you illustrate the kind of uh, of loss that individuals experienced? Um, whether whether we're talking about, uh, let's say, someone like the, the the Agatha, the teenager in your story, who's raped and then subjected to all kinds of trauma as she's trying to get a legal abortion, or more generally, um, what what kind of story you know would you want to share that that maybe really illustrates what was taken away? The the story is is. Um consists of several pieces and so so in terms of language and kind of the discursive level there um, there was a very clear shift it was not only in Poland other other um, former um, Eastern East Central European countries experienced some similar uh, trends in kind of the 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 trend has been characterized by um, by some scholars, as kind of a remasculinization of um, of the society after the the after the presumed demasculinization of um, of these countries during state socialism, communism, um, and the the idea of remasculinization um, captures that concept. Sort of captures number of of different phenomenon, uh, certainly the language of um, women's rights as um, being associated with either uh, communism and therefore bad, um, or the West, and somehow it's a foreign import. Um, so so the, the, the elements, the, the right-leaning elements, the conservative elements and um, in uh, politics, but also in um, in the media and um, and of course the Catholic Church have really taken up a, a campaign to to launch this kind of a shift in just the way that the the values are discussed. So suddenly there was um, the value of motherhood as being. Um, as being the primary value for women, uh, whereas this was the value of motherhood was always important during communism. This never went away, but the discourse around it has really shifted. And what was accompanied in the in at the political level and 
an employment level is that there were certain protections that were removed by by the Valenza government, um, or Valenza led um, um, conservative governments that were protections in employment for women who, who were able to rely on um, the the job security and not have to worry about gender discrimination in employment. These protections were taken away as uh, deregulation took place after the fall of communism, as they were sort of the women were were being portrayed as primarily um, if they have children, they should not be working. Um, so the idea of um, the uh, even Bawensa talked about you know the salary we should have a breadwinner salary. In other words, the, the men's salary is the, of primary concern, and the women, if they were to enter employment, um, would be doing so for enjoyment, <laughs> or you know, for uh, for pleasure, part time. Um, and this was not the reality for women at all. Women were already well established in employment over the previous decades. So, so these kinds of the language of um, of women as mothers um, took took uh, the front stage, and what went with that, of course, everything is is kind of interlocked, uh, interconnected with reproductive rights, of course, because at that point um, there was this you know rise in anti um, reproductive rights rhetoric, anti-abortion, and kind of the the use of morality politics to regain um, regain the the nation as the as the Christian nation or as the Catholic nation as the Polish Pope John Paul II um, argued and certainly um, this was taken up uh, extremely well by the Catholic Church in Poland uh, and these discourses um, certainly materialized. In very specific laws, um, and uh, continue continue to be used. Um, that language shift was extremely important, but also, again, it's legislative changes, and um, and there were also some interesting changes uh, on the part of the Catholic Church. They were non-legislative, that they had to do with sort of surveillance of the population, stepping up. Um, kind of the the battle against contraception, what they what the Catholic Church calls uh, contraceptive mentality, and this is not just the Catholic Church. This sort of language taken up by Catholic doctors that I interviewed, for example, of the contraceptive mentality, or, or the culture of death, or the culture of contraception, as um, as uh, perceived as a as a, as a as something to dismantle after the fall of communism. So there were um, very concrete ways in which the church-state relationship manifested in people's lives. As you say, often it could be just sort of an ambiguous concept that there's some sort of uh, church-state relationship. But but I, I hope that in my book that I presented some, some um, good level of detail about how that what I argue was a de facto merging of church and state after the fall of communism, um, but not not unexpectedly in many ways. The ground, as my research shows, the ground was um, prepared for that 
to happen. Um, and that loss of language was, uh, was very much something that the, the feminist circles in Poland, but also I have to underscore just ordinary women and men who live sort of feminist um, ideals of um, for women thinking about um, having a wide set of options and education in Poland have a, certainly something I grew up with feeling that I you know anything is whatever I choose whatever I'm interested in I can pursue um, these these um, sort of shifts in um, in, in legislative and non-legislative uh, changes that took place as a result of a very close um, and specific ways in which the, the church inserted itself into the structures of the state over this, the, the decade following 1989 when, when um, communism collapsed in Poland were extremely decisive in what people experience day to day. Yeah, I, I think that the your, the story you tell is deeply human. I mean, the examples you referenced of the of the Catholic doctors. It's helpful, of course, folks who may not have an intuitive sense of how healthcare works outside the United States. It's probably helpful to remember that they're state employees. A lot of these doctors, uh, or all of these doctors, uh, by by definition, and in that sense. Um, you know, it strikes me one of the one of the normative implications of your story, if we're thinking about the level of politicians or about the level of labor leaders, because of course one of the the I think the really striking bits of the story is how the Solidarity Women's Section was shut down punitively, in effect, for uh, protesting restrictions to abortion, uh, and. Uh, also, the medical profession itself is that we're talking about uh, a world in which religious language, or at least religious identification, is very public. And church-state relations are a great way to capture that. But one of the ways that I was uh, thinking after I put down, having reread your book yet again, uh, after I put the book down, was I wondered, is it possible to imagine uh really genuinely, let's say, liberal, the way that you use the term in the book, uh, politics of gender equality with, in which religion does play a role in the public sphere. Let's, I, mean, I, can, I don't want to generalize too much, but in Poland since 1989 specifically, because it feels like part of the, uh, the challenge, and I would say part of the pathology that you identify and dissect, is that uh, religion is everywhere. And maybe it doesn't need to be an entirely private matter, but because it permeates behavior at every level, from the most prominent politicians in the land down to the doctors you go to see to depend on your health and well-being, then really it becomes conservatism becomes the norm. I guess on some level that's true even of Catholics who would consider themselves more progressive or more liberal. Uh, in the end, in your story, they're conservative too. Uh, I'm, I'm curious, does that seem fair? Um, I think maybe I would, I would um, recast this just slightly to say that um, the the in fact the the women in my story who are resisting these pressures are also catholic 
they identify, but what, what does that mean in this case? The affiliation is extremely high with Catholicism in Poland. It has been, of course, it's been declining in recent years for a number of reasons that we can discuss later. But the, the affiliation itself in Poland is very different from the actual religiosity. And I think this is a, um, an incredibly important part of the picture to keep in mind at all times that um, the, the actual behaviors, the, the daily routines, the decisions that people make about reproduction, sexuality, um, are quite independent in Poland from the dominance of the Catholic Church in that public sphere, as you, as you say. Now, there are real consequences, as I, as, I, um, as I discuss, that have to do with laws and have to do with certain forms of surveillance of people around reproductive behaviors, conduct, um, um, certain social cost to not adhering to that. But when it comes to kind of private um, body, body decisions, um, one's decisions around sexuality, um, reproduction, the, the self-determination of primarily Catholic women that I have spoken with, that I have interviewed for my research, is, are quite in, in, uh, um, in resistance uh, or, or these behaviors very much resist or, or ignore or circumvent what the church really wants these women to do. So I think that this idea of um, public religion everywhere, as I try to really uh, display in my book by by all the symbolism, certainly you know, the crucifixes and the the upper and lower houses of the parliament in Poland, the the presence of um, clergy of high ranking priests um, in major. Um, government events, um, certainly annually around Christmas, there is that ceremony um, uh, where the, the the government and the Catholic authorities come together to celebrate the holidays and the opłatek, um, which is the the wafer ceremony and associated with Christmas and the holidays. All of that symbolism, uh, certainly in school. Crucifixes hanging and crosses hanging in schools. Um, these the symbolism is very powerful. has has a lot of um, creates a lot of kind of hegemonic pressure on how to think, but how to act, but not in the private. And I think this is the story that that my my chapters about the the so called white what I'm calling a white coat of underground abortion um, that is quite widespread in Poland and has been since the um, banning of abortion or, or near banning of abortion 1993. So these, these uh, resistances are very much there. And we can only even look at the fertility rate in Poland. Clearly, there is an extremely effective contraception that is taking place, people are limiting how many children they have. Poland has one of the lowest birth rates in Europe and in the world, as a matter of fact. And this has persisted despite, uh, in spite of all the 
the public religion, the religion everywhere, the, the pressures. Um, and, and this is one of the paradoxes, is that when I hear somebody in the U.S. in particular say, Poland is a Catholic nation, to me, this, it just that, that statement can't exist alone. It has to be immediately unpacked because um, Poland is Catholic in the sense that the, the vast majority of Polish people affiliate with Catholicism, but the, the church is not happy with how, how they actually behave as Catholics for the most part, as we, we see from, um, from sort of the escalation of trying to make people um, prevent them from getting, from contracepting, preventing them from um, being able to access abortion care, uh, preventing them from being able to access um, in vitro infertility services. So yet people avail of all these things in different ways, whether clandestinely um, or whether the certain contraception is legal in Poland, but it's not subsidized. That's been removed um, by, um, since the fall of communism. So, so they avail themselves of, of what they need, of what, might, what the services that they, they need that might be available out there, but in ways that have to circumvent not just the laws in case of abortion, but have to circumvent, of course, routinely uh, the, the church's um, dictates around what a proper Catholic ought to do when it comes to reproduction and sexuality. This idea of the church being so dissatisfied with the way that many, if not most, uh, Polish Catholics live some aspect of their lives, if not many aspects of their lives. It makes me think about another sort of implication of your story. And you're, you're quite explicit about in the book, especially when you talk about, tell the story of uh, Wanda Nowicka right, from the Federation for Women and Family Planning and how uh, she became a major nationwide political figure uh, in the early 2010s. Uh, I don't know if you want to talk about her specifically, but I bring her up partly because uh, the face of so many uh, of this sort of really, really uh, important grassroots NGO uh, spectrum uh, for uh, re- not just reproductive rights, but in general, on which Polish women relied uh, after the mid-1990s, seemed politically to become entangled in the early 2010s with movements against xenophobia, with movements um, against discrimination against LGBT. In other words, in, uh, uh, with, with other movements that were targeted by certain public-facing fronts within the broadly understood Catholic discourse in in Poland in the early 21st century. Uh, Is that, in your mind, a Polish singularity? Is that something maybe we can cast more broadly in terms of former Iron Curtain countries? Obviously, Poland demographically is quite singular in terms of the power of, of Catholicism and the church. But this question of having to align feminism with other movements for social progress that had a hard time uh, 
establishing a foothold on the one hand because of the communist legacy on the left and on the other hand because of the powerful ascendant right uh, i'm i'm curious do you feel like that uh made it i don't know easier for uh prominent feminists like novitska or in the end did it make it harder to promote reproductive rights this need to to build coalitions with everyone who was um targeted by the Catholic Church? That's a very interesting question. And, and the, the, I, I suppose the first thing to, that maybe I should say is that the building of coalitions between the feminist movements um, and other movements against oppression uh, has a very strong tradition in just transnational feminism and, and sort of contemporary feminism. So um, making alliances across, for example, with labor unions, which, of course, in Poland, <laughs> this was uh, very much you know, not possible. As you said earlier, solidarity um, labor union uh, was, was not receptive to, to the feminists feminist in, um, um, in, uh, in Poland and, and women's rights and women's needs. Um, as the as the union was really uh, becoming quite prominent and, and powerful, but the the concept of inclusivity in feminism is is very much a contemporary concept of um, of thinking very broadly, not about women's rights, but about the rights of all marginalized groups, um, and therefore alignment of uh, feminism with LGBTQ plus uh, movements and communities is quite natural. Um, alignment against xenophobia is quite natural. Uh, so, in, but in the case of Poland, um, feminism was, was uniquely sort of marked by um, the conservative elements and right-leaning groups and, and the Catholic Church as, as something dangerous. And... Um, the the so uh, making these co coalitions w was was very important for the movement to broaden broaden their and connect along very similar lines as you said um, sort of fighting similar conservative right leaning elements fighting um, that kind of a church state machinery uh, so to speak. And um, and there's certain consistency to it, and broadening that um, that that whole movement based around inclusivity um, makes sense, and certainly internationally, uh, it makes sense that way as well. In in Ireland, uh, when we think about Ireland, another country that comes to mind um, when we think about a powerful church and um, and sort of a, a Catholic population, so to speak, um, or traditionally um, with the church, with Catholic church um, having a very significant role in public lives and also in the life, uh, in the decision-making at the political level. In Ireland, we see very similar alliances made um, across these groups. That's not to say that there's no tension between these groups and having some um, very particular directions that that are specific to each group, but there's the overarching concept is um, is um, 
prominent, is not unique to Poland, I should say. And, and Wanda Nowicka is such an incredibly important figure in Poland because she really started out um, at the end of the 1980s um, uh, as a, one of the founders of the group, the organization Neutrum, which was very specifically trying to address the, the concerns around the, the evident merging of the church and state that was taking place during the, the rapid um, um, growth and support of the Solidarity Movement. And, and of course, the Catholic Church was extremely important during that era as a supporter and, and um, active participant in, in uh, the, the sort of the growing, um, developing struggle against the communist regime. So um, that observation that something is, that the, the role of the Catholic Church can be bad in the long run was already inherent to that group's formation. And, and the concept that, what, what, that, that there needs to be a struggle at the same time not just for this independence from, from communism, but also a struggle toward a secular Poland, a, a, um, a, a Poland that is free of this new potential dependence, which, which they believed the Catholic Church would, would create. So um, there was, so Wanda is, came from that space um, and to jump just briefly to my experience in the U.S., over the years, um, and during my postdoc um, at, uh, in the School of Public Health and many different groups in New York that, that were um, active in the feminist movement in the U.S., one of the, one of the concerns that was related to me that people felt um, back in, um, in the 80s um, in these feminist circles was that while everybody's talking about how and rejoicing about solidarity and the, and the direction in which Poland was moving in the 1980s, um, a very hopeful direction, yet there were certain voices within these feminist groups um, in New York and you know in the U.S. across um, these groups that were... Um, that were concerned. They were concerned about the sort of the incoming of this another this other power, which was the Catholic Church, and what this could mean. So Wanda Nowicka has uh, she served as the president of the group that you mentioned earlier, the Federation for Women and Family Planning, which is really the largest, most most active and um, important reproductive rights organization in Poland. There are a number of other smaller groups, uh, but this is, this is the group that really kind of unifies them all and, and has been most prominent and active also um, on the European scale. And uh, so Wanda has really taken up her early concerns and sort of the alarm around the, the role of the Catholic Church as it was becoming such a key player in those final years, 1980s. And then um, after these concerns materialized in the pretty much as soon as communism ended in 1991, there was immediately the first 
restricted, restrictive um, uh, law that had to do with um, conscientious objection and essentially encouraging doctors and other healthcare providers, including pharmacists, to cite uh, objection based on conscience to services that were lawful. And so um, this was sort of before abortion and could even be banned, restricted legally. There was that conscientious objection uh, policy put into place to immediately um, facilitate Catholic or those following the church doctors to restrict access to these services, even though they were not yet, they were still legal. So, so Vanda's concerns and, and her group's concerns materialized. And then this is how the 1991, I, uh, my memory uh, serves, the Federation for Women and Family Planning was formed. And since then, the group has been, has been, um, uh, has really struggled to, um, to fight against further restrictions over the years. But because as I argue in the book, there, there, there was certain certain kind of um, lulling of the population into feeling that reproductive rights will always be there because of the decades of access, uh, relatively um, easy and safe access, certainly um, during the communist period, that there was not an immediate action that was taking place. It was that the population at large was... Um, you know, we can theorize, you can theorize, I'm sure, better than I can about sort of what were the conditions of you know, how people wanted to vote or were engaged in the political process um, after, after independence, after 1989, and to what degree they really wanted to participate. But when it comes to kind of mobilization at the larger level in the country, it was not taking place. And even some of these feminists, besides Wanda, that I, that I, um, that are quite prominent in Poland, Kaja Sztuka comes comes to mind, for example, um, who who are television personalities and important in academia and the movement in general, um, the feminist movement in general. They observed that there was certain sort of, I hate to say complacency, but maybe maybe. That is accurate to say. After the decades of um, clear access to reproductive rights, that there was not a mobilization in those years, 1990, 1991, to 1993. And those were the critical years when the, the restrictions took place. And so the, the movements, um, the feminist movement grew, wasn't there in the kind of scale that was needed or, or and the population was not really engaged with the issues at the political level that, that we might see now with the strikes that are taking place when Poland is basically turning to the extreme, extreme, um, the, you know, one, the second harshest uh, laws currently in Poland against um, um, against abortion access and care. 
Yeah, this is, thank you, a good moment, I think, to, to turn to the events of the recent years. Uh, I mean, obviously, your your book, The Politics of Morality, was published in 2015. I think at the time, as I read the, the, the final pages of the book, or reread them, rather, it, it seemed like there had been progress. Obviously, Novitska's election to the same was uh, a good sign, a welcome sign, but you know, five years on, of course, October 2020 is the beginning of, well, it's the decision from the Constitutional Court uh, firming up the abortion ban with emphasis on ban. Uh, and and to, the, to that extent, you know, what you were describing before and what you, I think, discuss with such nuance in the book about the uh, conscientious objection possibilities, not even really necessary at this point, and then formalized despite the months of protests and the strike kobiet, the women's strike in January 2021. So all of that being said, if you could maybe update our, our listeners a little bit uh, in terms of where you see the story as having shifted in the five or six years after your book was published. And, uh, and if I can maybe put a fine point on it, why did things get so much worse? The story has, has truly shifted uh, in 2015, as you said, uh, the, the election of the um, law and justice party uh, or the, the victory of the law and justice party through elections uh, was a, actually was a surprise to me on the one hand because I felt that uh, was just such a right wing party uh, that that um, I suppose it was equally surprising for me that Trump was elected in the um, in the US but uh, the 2015 Elections has, have really shifted the um, the ways that governance is taking place in Poland. There is it's sort of um, becoming a, um, a a regime with uh, a few democratic avenues left. Certainly, the um, Law and Justice Party have curbed uh, have put major curbs on. Um, the judiciary, they're putting their own um, justices and judges at every level, uh, practically, and doing doing so much of the time top-down, um, and also putting curbs on the free press. Uh, so they're very much aligned. They have been very strongly aligned over the years with the Catholic Church. And part of their kind of takeover of, of the bringing Poland back to the to the status of a of a Christian nation and sort of this it's distancing from the EU very much heading in the right wing um, direction and the very conservative uh, extreme conservative direction and um, and this this is not what the population wants I mean we see that in the massive strikes that we have seen when this government <clears throat> proposed, as you said, it was a ban essentially on abortion because um, the 1993, if I can just for a second clarify that, 1993, abortion was restricted severely by um, eliminating the the socioeconomic reason uh, for abortion, which is the the vast majority 
of abortion care that women seek and, and want is because of socioeconomic reasons. Um, and what was left in 1993 were only three reasons, which is, was very, very narrow. And those three reasons were um, abortion could be performed if there was, uh, if the pregnancy resulted from a crime like rape or incest. And um, uh, another reason was um, if, if there were severe fetal abnormalities. And this is the, the particular um, um, exception that was removed in 2020 through this, um, a, a constitutional tribunal it was just removed top down. And so the, the changes that are taking place in recent years are very much dictated by kind of non-democratic methods. They, these are made these are changes made that suit the agenda of the Catholic Church and kind of promote the, um, the, the overall model of morality that the country is, um, that, the, that the right-leaning government wants and the, and the, and the church wants. Uh, but at the same time, the population as a whole was very much against banning abortion for severe fetal abnormalities. And this was very consistently documented um, through national opinion polls. So what we are seeing in the recent years is kind of further um, crystallization of that relationship between the church and state to, to really, that, that's completely dissociated from what the country wants when it comes to reproductive rights. However, um, and I cannot really, I mean, I think there could be many different arguments about why the elections resulted in um, the way they result in 2015. I think that that the church and the, um, and the right-leaning parties were um, probably um, paying more attention to, to the inequalities, talking more about the poor, talking more about um, the, the, um, the, all the people who are left out of these um, as a result of the neoliberal restructuring, lost jobs, um, um, had tremendous hardships that, that people experienced. And the, it was the right-wing parties that paid more attention to that than the Polish left. And um, you know, I'm curious what you think about this, but I think one of the what I was very much surprised at the outcome of elections 2015, but at the same time, it also made sense that the hardships that people have been experiencing in Poland uh, kind of took priority, perhaps. And this is how the um, how the peace party, the the law and justice party, um, became elected. I mean, certainly they were promising. They made a lot of promises. They promised. Uh, during their elections, they promised, you know, they had paid attention to housing, the housing crisis. They were promising housing for, for new, you know, young people. Um, they were promising um, higher wages um, and so on. So a lot, of, a lot of this was not really addressed um, in an effective way over the, the years by the left, more of sort of central left parties, 
such as um, the, for example, the civic platform um, uh, or or the SLD, which I um, can't remember how this would be in, the, in, but it's a left in English, but it would be a left. It's a leftist party. These parties did embrace neoliberal changes and sort of um, allowed allowed um, many of these inequalities to to not be um, not be their priority. They did not choose that as their priority. So the church was the church and the right leaning groups were the ones highlighting these inequalities. And perhaps this is why um, the, this this extremely right wing law and justice party came to power. Then having the mandate um, was you know they could move forward with all sorts of top down changes, kind of for the good of the nation. Very much this was part of the discourse that's taking place now. It's for the good of the nation. And, and maybe this is a good moment just to bring up briefly that, that the Catholic Church, the high affiliation with the Catholic Church that I mentioned earlier, is, um, is such an important uh, piece to the story because while people actually uh, are not practicing, there's only about 40% of the population in Poland that's regularly practicing Catholics, but 85 or so percent are affiliated with, with the Catholic Church. That affiliation being so high is a form is being used as a form of a mandate by the Catholic Church to say, well, we speak on behalf of the population when we want to make this kind of a change or that kind of a change. This is what the Polish people want because we represent them. And so in some ways that um, that uh, what some scholars call a duplicity, uh, really, uh, kind of this double discourse on the one hand, high affiliation and, you know, people still making sure that they have, that they have a christening for their child and they maybe go to church and um, for Christmas or Easter, but at the same time don't really practice Catholicism on other days, that discrepancy sort of is costing the population in terms of not having a say um, when the vast majority would prefer not to have abortion restricted any further, that there will not be a referendum to really see how the population votes. Um, certainly there was no referendum to see if there was an appetite to restrict reproductive rights in 1993. Um, th- this is not a method to that that is being used by the sort of the, the church state um, approach to um, imposing that particular kind of morality. So the current events are are very troubling. I feel that it's um, the the main way that the current government operates is uh, to impose its own directives as it wishes so we we it's it's very difficult to um to watch and it's uh, it's hard to understand how this can be turned around um with the current momentum and we you know, certainly the, if we were to make some comparisons to ireland this would look very different in ireland 
I, I do want to talk for a moment about Ireland. One thing you said, I mean, there, you've, you covered so much ground. I, I, I think it's really, really important, the points that you made also about, for me, uh, now having researched Catholicism for many years, I see it, and I've seen a different version of it in my own research. But coming to this with a fresh set of eyes, one could say, how is it that there seems to be a synergy between neoliberalism on the one hand and Catholicism on the other, right? This idea, in some sense, you know, rise of free market capitalism opens the door for all kinds of electoral strategies, certainly to have in Poland, that play to these kinds of um, uh, of church-driven commitments in social policy. And that doesn't even mean they're effective uh, because if you look at the total fertility rate, I know you have, uh, it's not like thing, the, the policies have really worked very well. But the idea of sort of uh, locking it, the uh, Polish society into this incubator for conservative social policy and more generally uh, discursive, some really ugly discourses. After all, the peace and, and, and its president, Andrzej Duda, won re-election largely on the back of, of culture wars, whether it's uh, you know, maligning uh, and sort of dumping into one box and maligning uh, feminist and LGBT uh, anti-discrimination movements as quote-unquote genderism. Uh, remember all the, the quotes that genderism is supposed to be a new Nazism or Soviet communism, which is just, I mean, that's, that's so, uh, I, I, it, it defies description for me. It's so abhorrent um, from a, no, a purely normative standpoint. But then also the, the fact that um, that, that, that there are real consequences to the electoral discourse in terms of education, uh, schools. And you make this point repeatedly in your book that the generations of school kids educated in Poland since 1989 have been profoundly and very tangibly impacted by these kinds of culture war consequences with the presence of uh, the church's norms as imposed through uh, a whole spectrum from left to right, as you were pointing out, of different politicians and different statesmen over the years. Uh, I, I don't know if you would necessarily want to talk more about Poland. Uh, I do. I will say it's striking for me, thinking in comparative perspective. There was one interview quotation in your book, which really think I find very relevant here. A woman who in 2007 said, I think it's great that we're having a demographic crisis because the state doesn't give us any support, not support for women who are pregnant or women with kids. Poland seems to be maybe not an outlier, but moving in a different direction from a lot of other countries. And this, I know, is something that you've been working on in your current research. Have other countries given more support, uh, whether or not they've drifted in a, in a conservative direction? Uh, how would you sort of now place what we've been saying about Poland, especially in the last couple of years, in the broader uh, in the broader panorama of the countries you've been researching? Uh, Poland is a, such an interesting case because, uh, um, because the declining fertility is so dramatic in Poland. It has been identified by demographers as, as um, Poland being in the, in the lowest low category, what they call, um, meaning that well below 
one, 1.5 um, children per life um, uh, per woman. In other words, this is a, it's a calculation, total fertility rate, TFR, is a replacement, replacement rate is 2.1. So if each, each woman has 2.1 children, um, then the population would replace itself. And the 0.1 has to do with accounting for infant mortality and so on. But um, essentially, having two children would replace the population. And Poland dropped well below that um, shortly after the fall of communism and has been in a sustained low, very low demographic um, rate uh, below 1.5 and continues there. And demographers say that it's actually below 1.5 is a, what they call a low fertility trap, where it's very difficult for countries to actually come out of that, only um, because of many reasons, but in particular because the whole kind of population um, population age structure changes over time, and there are literally fewer people of reproductive age to even kind of bring that number back up. So Poland, uh, what has been extremely interesting in Poland is that I feel that the Polish government doesn't learn from research and doesn't learn from experience, because certainly there have been um, there have been uh, attempts to motivate people to have more children, motivate women to have more children. But as my research has shown, but not only my own, but other scholars as well, is that there's a very um, rampant, uh, widespread discrimination, gender discrimination in employment in Poland. So women often are the ones who are fired first before men are. They, um, there are also sorts of other discriminatory practices where women um, of reproductive age who apply for jobs, it's quite common to, for them to be asked by uh, potential employers whether they plan to have children. Um, a woman who is married without any children of reproductive age looking for a job is almost like a red flag to employers because they think, well, certainly she will have, she'll get pregnant any, any moment now. And, and the company then doesn't want to pay the maternity benefits and, and so on. Uh, women are always labeled as less reliable in Poland. So these kinds of discourses um, and experiences that women have had with discrimination, whether they experienced it themselves, as they have told me, or they knew about that because their sister or cousin or friend experienced it. This is very well known in Poland. And so uh, for, for women to postpone childbearing, is, it's a natural part of um, postpone or, and reduce. It's a natural part of uh, trying to hang on to good jobs, try to um, uh, finish education. Um, and, and there's that fear of, if I have a second child, will I be able to support this child? Will I be able to have enough income? Um, the government doesn't provide these securities. Certainly the neoliberal changes that you mentioned have included uh, very much targeted women in many ways, so, um, 
resulted in that in, in women experiencing it the most it, uh, when the 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 cuts included for example cutting childcare subsidized state subsidized childcare services um, that were uh, provided under communism uh, when they were um, cutting um, these protections I mentioned earlier in, in, in labor laws um, against firing women or um, replacing women who went on maternity leave. And certainly there's no regulation about these discriminatory practices that are taking place um, when, when women are seeking jobs, these interviews where they're being asked about their reproductive plans. So, and scholars have labeled um, the situation for, for women in Poland as um, feminization of poverty in Poland was one, another, that, that women are becoming kind of the um, uh, economic underclass in Poland. So very much the, the neoliberal changes have had negative impact. And so it's not a surprise that women are... Um, and couples want to delay childbearing. Now, the the age at first child in Poland is um, over twenty nine years old. So uh, this is very consistent uh, with kind of the the idea of finishing education, securing a job, securing um, a position, you know, developing a trajectory in one's career. Um, and we have had this state of affairs now for um, for 20 years in Poland. And, and research has shown, also Polish demographers have shown us that there would need to be some major changes that have to do with supporting um, women's ability to reconcile work and family. And the, but the Polish government from the kind of, you know, the, the right, uh, right-leaning perspective or the Catholic Church perspective, this is not something they they are receptive to reconciling because the discourse coming from that from them is really about women's role as mothers, the importance of the family, um, and therefore these other supports should not be um, they should not be spending on that or they should not be allowed because the, the whole concept is that women should be at home and focusing on childbearing. So um, there's been some very troubling developments. Um, I mean, over the, over the years, the Polish government tried to provide cash incentives for people to have more children. That certainly didn't work. Um, uh, they were puny. Um, there were uh, 1,000 złotych, which is perhaps about 300 euro or so, um, or, or $300, uh, give or take. These were what women in my study called laughable or absurd, absurd amounts to, to, to motivate somebody to have a child in a system where employment is insecure, in particular for women, a lot of women have are given these, you know, jobs that are that are uh, referred to as um, trash contracts, shmechova, umowy shmechova, which is literally translates into trash uh, or junk contracts. Which are these are not contracts; these are temporary, part-time 
uh, without benefits. So, so there isn't the employment security and the sort of the state supports necessary to really motivate people to have more children. And um, to com- make a comparison, great comparison is France. France um, is uh, is such a um, in contrast to Poland. Uh, it's it's a really a great example of the emphasis in, in France. And France actually has uh, has increased its birth rate and is um, France in France birth rate is around one point eight seven one point nine children per woman per lifetime. It's still not the replacement rate, but they have been able to increase it with very specific uh, strategies in supporting this the work-family reconciliation uh, policies. So putting money into state supports that provide child care, um, that provide um, the kind of security uh, measures and policies that that help women feel secure when they go on maternity leave, that they will not lose their job. Um, and, and these were, that's a success, that's a success case. Gender equity is understood in France as an important aspect of promoting childbearing. And gender equity manifests itself in part in these work-family reconciliation policies where it's understood um, a priori that women are interested in getting education, getting employment, having careers, being active citizens in their communities and the society at large. And so promoting gender equity um, in France is of high priority. In Poland, it's quite the opposite. It's not about gender equity. It's about the discourse of kind of the naturalized biological roles that um, are being promoted. And therefore, uh, these neoliberal cuts or you know, lack of supports by the state to, to help women um, work and, and have children are then justified. And these other measures that, are, that, are, um, that don't work but are quite extreme take place. Uh, in particular, um, the, the most recently, there was uh, there were calls. This has not completely taken taken effect yet, but there are calls by the uh, the current the the peace the law and justice government um, to create an institute for family and demography, and this institute is supposed to be a think tank to try to monitor the population and. And, and report their data to the government. It's, very, it's a very suspicious kind of an institute. Um, why devote um, uh, an enormous amount of money, Polish government money, to have this kind of an institute? Much of it, it appears from, from what, um, what we see in the media is about kind of surveillance of women, including the very scary um, idea of registering women women's pregnancies and some you know government master register and so therefore uh, kind of tracking them over time if they were to terminate the pregnancy by the you know through the clandestine abortion underground or ordering 
abortion pills online or maybe traveling to Germany, as they can certainly do, um, those who can afford to do so, um, then this register would flag an individual who is no longer pregnant and then maybe perhaps investigate why. And so this is just becoming kind of a, a police state strategy that we have actually seen in um, Ceausescu's Romania under the, the dictatorship of, of uh, Nicolae Ceausescu. And that has been very well documented. Um, and, and these were the kind of measures that were, that, that were not effective in, in, in motivating people to, to become pregnant and, and, and have more children. Certainly, this, this led to, to um, um, unsafe, illegal abortions and all sorts of other um, serious problems in, in, um, in Romania that we know about. But um, in Poland, this move toward further and further clamping down to try to, in some sort of top-down control uh, surveillance uh, um, types of mechanisms, force people to have children. This is just not, it's not going to work, but it also raises enormous concerns about the, the nature of democracy there in the present day. I mean, there's a very dark note on which to close in terms of thinking about the future trajectory of Poland. You know, obviously, right now, Poland is, as we record this, making waves in terms of international media by welcoming refugees from Ukraine. But I have to wonder if there isn't some kind of potential um, uh, set of restrictions in terms of the same, the same nefarious cultural practices we've been talking about, uh, strings to be attached to a and uh, what's what comes next uh, in Poland itself. I, I hate to bring our conversation to a close, but I, I'm, I'm going to have to move to my last question, which actually builds off of what you were just saying, you know, the, the striking contrast between the directions in which France on the one hand and Poland on the other have moved. Uh, but we are in this kind of remarkable uh, and, and very in so many ways, devastating moment in world history. Uh, the COVID-19 pandemic uh, on the one hand uh, and the, the Russian invasion of Ukraine on the other, a lot of European solidarity, a sense of, of different um, uh, societies banding together. I know that you've worked in the in the course of the pandemic. You've been uh, writing about impediments to abortion access during the pandemic. I know that you've obviously been working on other European countries as well, Ireland and Malta. I'm just curious if for your audience, we've spoken a lot about Poland. And clearly, uh, Poland is going to be a place to monitor in a number of respects to 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 try to mitigate the trends that you were just describing. But what are it, 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 what are your concerns more generally in terms of abortion access or reproductive rights in Europe right now and for the coming years? Um, I actually have a more of an optimistic uh, vision uh, when it comes to the my outlook for Europe in general, um, there are certainly fragmented policies that have to do with abortion, contraception, infertility care, uh, very fragmented. So they they differ quite a lot between countries. But um, I have done research uh, in Ireland uh, recently and um, also 
I'm doing with colleagues in, in Spain. Uh, we have been doing research on uh, transnational, uh, on, on women traveling across national borders and, and within certain um, uh, intranational borders as well to seek abortion services when they can't access them locally. So, um, of course, the pandemic has made it more difficult uh, because travel has been restricted. But there, there are a couple of points um, that are optimistic that I'd like to bring up. One is that overall, the trend in, in Europe and globally is toward liberalization of, of reproductive rights. This is the, So if we were to just kind of um, think of it as a, in a very general sense, Poland, unfortunately, um, and it's my country of origin, so it hurts uh, extra. But Poland is an outlier um, in that sense of going in a very different direction and, and sort of isolating itself in that sense. But uh, in Europe, we have very, very positive um, outcome in Ireland. Ireland being compared to Poland in many ways and um, and, and there's, as I mentioned earlier, we discussed the, the strength of the Catholic Church. But in Ireland, what we have seen um, over the, the years is sort of declining political power of the Catholic Church and declining the power of the Catholic Church just in, in daily lives. Um, and this much of that has really um, been taking place um, you know, for a number of different reasons that that the Irish people discuss, and you know, one of them is, are, the, of course, the, the sexual abuse scandals coming from the church, but also there are certain um, um, more openness about um, the, the, the kind of the fundamental rights that the European Union promotes. Um, so in Ireland, we have seen kind of simultaneous decline in, in the role of the Catholic Church, but also um, more uh, democratic channels um, have been used to decide about reproductive rights. And this is a fundamental difference with Poland. Uh, in Poland, we don't have the, the referenda that I, I mentioned that could have taken place, could be taking place. In, in Ireland, on the other hand, we have a very much, Ireland operates uh, through a democratic, through democratic means, through public consultations, and they liberalized their abortion law in um, 2018 uh, through a national referendum that was, uh, was extremely important, kind of a shift. It was a historic moment for Ireland. Um, but also their, their medical doctors or the medical communities are more engaged and are able to speak more publicly about the, the reproductive rights and, and the needs for reproductive health care services. Uh, so Ireland is a, is a very a good example. And since the, the change in the law in Ireland, they have implemented abortion services in 2019. And the research study that I led over the last two years um, has uh, has uh, really examined how that implementation is going. And we found that um, overall it's working quite well. And there's, there's uh, you know, access to services has been established by the government and um, and well maintained in general. There's of course some some gaps that we identify, but in general, it's a very uh, positive story. In in Malta, very briefly, um, Malta is the sort of the, the third of the th of the countries that 
traditionally in, in uh, Europe has there's been kind of a essentially merging of church and state at different points in history. In Malta, there's also developing movements toward liberalization because of this understanding that restrictive rights do not mean that people don't seek the service. It just means that they have to travel. That means that they have to seek services clandestinely. So kind of seeing with open eyes that these laws don't um, have the effect, they have the illusion that um, abortion is not sought in that country. That's that's what it gives um, the... the um, the politicians who enact these laws. Um, so Malta is also trending in the direction of, of um, more openness and more discussion about, uh, about these rights. Poland, again, is unfortunately the outlier. And the final point that maybe would be important to make is what you brought up about the COVID-19 pandemic, certainly because of the um, restrictions on movement that this has imposed, it has uh, very much affected um, access to healthcare across every type of healthcare. When it comes to abortion care, it has uh, certainly made it much more difficult or impossible for people to travel when they need to go outside of their country to seek services, because maybe in the country of origin, um, they cannot access the care they need. Um, there could be many different reasons, but um, what we have, what is also a positive kind of a, um, aspect of of that story uh, that's still developing, is the the um, growth of the use of um, abortion pills for self-managed abortions, and this is the WHO just came out with a new guidance around abortion care in the last couple of days. And um, telemedicine, so um, women receiving the prescription medication at home um, and, and doing the, um, taking the pills at home um, is, is one of the ways that, that kind of the need for movement can be reduced over time. So self-managed abortion through telemedicine um, is definitely a growing phenomenon around the world in Europe certainly, but also in the U.S., which might be a way for people to access services in the future should our own laws here become very restricted. And, um, and, and even if they don't, this is another option. Telemedicine is another option that, um, that, is, that exists among a number of different options to access care in countries where, where these are lawful. So there are certain positive developments um, and, and uh, as much as the, the Polish case is not is uh, very concerning and um, not so not so optimistic. Well, I appreciate that we can end with some cause for optimism. Uh, we've covered a lot of ground. I think our audience will appreciate enormously the Tour d'Horizon in terms of the where we've come in the past few decades with reproductive rights, especially in Poland, but also looking more broadly at uh, what the immediate future holds in Europe and perhaps in the U.S. as well. Uh, 
Professor Jana Mishtal has been my guest today. I think from the standpoint of 2022, enormously important to revisit her book, The Politics of Morality, The Church, the State, and Reproductive Rights in Post-Socialist Poland. Professor Mishtal, thank you so much. Thank you for inviting me. It's been a pleasure. Everyone have a good afternoon. Thanks.